turn with, turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 127 as we uh, continue just looking at some various psalms. And this one is probably one that many of you guys have seen cross-stitched and have maybe hanging in your grandmother's house. Unless the Lord builds the house, that those who build it labor in vain. Great psalm, Psalm 127. And uh, we're going to look at this psalm of Solomon this morning. But before we do so, let me pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and I pray... Oh, Holy Spirit, would you come and fill me this morning? I am just, uh, just a messenger, the messenger, Lord, and uh, I am certainly um, often intimidated by that and, uh, and uh, not worthy to preach often. Well, God, really never. Lord, it's really only by your grace that I can stand here. Lord, I pray, would you come, come Holy Spirit, and, and um, quicken my words and enliven the hearts of those who hear it this morning. We would be challenged. We would be transformed and changed from the inside out. Well, we really do need to hear the truth of your word. We need it desperately. It is, it is the only antidote for our sin-sick hearts. So come, Holy Spirit, now. And I pray that you would help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, and the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He will not be put to shame. He speaks with his enemies in the gate. Well, we're in Psalm 127 this morning, and you sh- the, the, the Scripture, your word, should have a title there of who the psalm is by, and it tells us that this psalm is from Solomon, right? And then it tells us what kind of psalm it is. It's a psalm of ascent, or a psalm of ascent. Now, some of you have read the movie or you've seen the book, A Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Have you ever seen that movie before? It's just a strange movie. Strange book. Yeah, it is a really funny story as well. Well, in a way, the Psalms of Ascent, which are 15 psalms from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, another term used for these psalms is a pilgrim psalm or the pilgrim psalm. So he's like, where is he going with this Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Well, in a way, the Psalms of Ascent, these 15 psalms, We're like the pilgrim's guide to the galaxy. The pilgrim's guide to the journey. Now what what is the psalm of songs of ascent about? What is the ascent? Well, these pilgrims, these Jewish pilgrims, would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem every year to worship in the temple and to observe certain sacred feasts as a part of worship of Yahweh, their Lord. And it was something that these families looked greatly forward to. But it was a journey, right? They would be coming from miles. Uh, you know, transportation back then wasn't as convenient or as easy as it is today. So it was a journey for them. They would pack up their belongings, they would head to Jerusalem, and they would take these Psalms of Ascent with them. And it was like a mini hymn book, if you will, for these pilgrims. And they would sing these songs as a family. They would sing these Psalms as a community on their way to Jerusalem to worship God, to celebrate the Lord, to celebrate and worship in His tabernacle. They would sing these songs and worship to the Lord on their journey, but also they would be singing these psalms of ascent to themselves. Now why would they be doing that? 
Well, because they held God's Word very dear, very close to their heart. And they would sing God's Word to themselves. They would sing God's promises to themselves to refresh themselves on this long journey to go to Jerusalem to find comfort and rest. So, with that in mind, if they would sing these psalms to themselves to rediscover and to, to, to work into their hearts God's promises, what are some of the particular promises or truths about God that they would be singing to themselves in Psalm 127? That's what we're going to look at today. And so if you take one, Psalm 127 and you boil down Psalm 127 to kind of its base truth, here's what Psalm 127 would tell us. That apart from the Lord, apart from active dependence upon the Lord, apart from trust in the Lord, our lives are pointless, restless, and fruitless. That's kind of what we see here in Psalm 127. And specifically, now this is neat, specifically Psalm 127 basically tells us about three basic activities of life that are relevant to all people, to all cultures, no matter where you are in the world. And it appeals to these three basic activities of life and basically says, listen, with these three basic activities of life, God's truth and dependence upon the Lord is the only way you're going to find meaning or purpose in these three basic activities of your life. And so what are these three basic activities that we see very early on here in the psalm? It's very clear as you read the psalm, you see them. These three activities are building a house, right? Protecting a city, and raising a family. So the psalmist Solomon gives us three illustrations here and says these illustrations, these applications in the psalm revolve around construction, security, and parenting. Okay? And then Solomon says in these three spheres, construction, security, and parenting, Solomon is charging us to trust God and depend upon God and recognize that all of our efforts in building a house and protecting a city and raising a family, all of our efforts in those three areas, unless the Lord blesses those areas, they will be in vain. Now Derek Kidner says this. He's a commentator that I love and and love his commentary on the Psalms. Let me me read you what he says about this Psalm 127. He says, One of the most telling features of this short poem is that it singles out three of our most universal preoccupations. Building security and raising a family. And he makes us ask what they all amount to and to whom we owe them. And so this psalm has a lot to say to us this morning. So I want to just start out asking you some questions, kind of some diagnostic questions, okay? It's like a doctor would ask his patient a diagnostic question. Are you a worrier? I love seeing your faces as soon as I ask that question. Are you a worry? You worry. You worrying right now? Then this psalm is for you. It really is. Are you a person? Now get this. Are you a person who has learned the spiritual discipline of trusting the Lord and of resting in the Lord? You've met people like that who just have this trust in the Lord and they have this peace about themselves. Even in the midst of the worries around them, they trust the Lord. This psalm is for you. How about this one? Do you work for a living? Are you in some kind of career or vocation or job? Do you work? And and, and while you're working and in your work, you have a conscious dependence upon the Lord. Do you depend upon the Lord to make your labor and your work fruitful? Or does your Christianity make no difference whatsoever whatsoever in your approach to your work or to your labor or to your vocation? 
is even trusting in the Lord even a feature of your work or the way you work? Maybe do do you work to protect yourself? Do you work to provide security for yourself? Or do you work to provide security for, for your family? And in doing so, you're still not finding any rest, but you're laboring in anxiety, and you have this no abiding sense of refreshing rest or security. You remember what David said in Psalm 23? We saw this a few weeks ago. What did David say in Psalm 23? He said, He spread a table before me, right? In the presence of my enemies. Isn't that a great picture of David's ability to trust in the Lord and receive from Him this blessed rest, even in the presence of His enemies? You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Some of you maybe read that from Psalm 23 and you think, I have no idea what it would be like to even feel that way. To be able to have that sense of rest even in the presence of my enemies. What about if you're a family here today? What if you have children and grandchildren? What about your dependence on the Lord and your family life? Does His providence and His plan take precedence in your mind and your heart as you're raising your children? You see, this psalm speaks to all of these universal things. Building or job or vocation. Security. We all want security. Raising a family. These are universal preoccupations that affect every single one of you sitting in this room. And this psalm speaks to those things in a timely way. And it makes very clear to us, this psalm, Psalm 127, makes very clear to us that our building, our protecting, our raising a family are ultimately pointless and restless and fruitless apart from God uh, taking those things and apart from us and our deliberate conscious dependence on the Lord in those things. So I want to look at this song from two angles this morning, or two two things this morning in this psalm that show us about these three universal preoccupations that we have. And the first thing we'll see is in verses 1 and 2, and then the second thing we'll see is in verses 3 and 5. So the first thing we see is this, verses 1 and 2, that our creating and conserving, our building and our protecting, our work and our security, all of these things are pointless, and we'll find no rest in them unless we trust and turn those things over to the Lord. Isn't that the message of the first two verses? What does he say? Solomon says, unless the Lord builds the house right, those who labor in it labor in vain. Unless the Lord, he says, watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Now when you see that word vain here in Psalm 127, what does that make you think of in the Old Testament? Probably makes you think of Solomon, right? And the other book that he wrote, what did he write? Ecclesiastes. Have you ever read Ecclesiastes? Sometimes you read it and you kind of scratch your head. But what does he use? He uses this term vanity or vanity of vanities again and again. He's very repetitive, right, in its use in the book of Ecclesiastes. So here's what Solomon means. When he wrote Ecclesiastes and he used this term vain or vanity of vanities, what he means by that in Ecclesiastes is that the best stuff that you can get in life, the best stuff in life that you have apart from the Lord is ultimately empty. It will not fill you up. That's what he means by vain or vanity of vanities in Ecclesiastes. But in here, same Arthur here in Psalm 127, he gives us a different angle on what it means to be vain. It means that you can throw yourself into one of these universal preoccupations of vocation or building or security or raising a family. You can throw yourself into these things and then at the end of your life, you can look back on that, those things. You can look at yourself in the mirror and say, what, what was the point of all of that? That's kind of what Solomon means here. He's telling you that you can build and you can seek security 
And either it's your doing or it's going to be the Lord's doing. And if it's not the Lord's doing, it's going to be ultimately pointless. And so we can work like beavers, right? We can work ourselves to the bone and can endeavor to protect ourselves in various ways and in various situations. And if those things are not ultimately the Lord's doing, then one day, one day, you're going to look in the mirror and say, what was all of that that's the first thing we see. And then secondly, Solomon tells us that unless our trust is in the Lord, we will never have rest. Who needs rest here today? Some of you are like, yeah. <laughs> Raise all your limbs. You know, we all need rest, right? And that's what he tells us. Unless our trust is in the Lord, we'll never have rest. Look at verse 2. He says, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved, what did he say? Don't sleep during the sermon. He gives his beloved, sleep. that was just a little jam, sorry. He gives to his beloved sleep. Isn't that a beautiful picture? He gives to his beloved, he gives to you rest. He gives to his beloved sleep. It's a beautiful picture, and that's a contrast. Look at the contrast he starts out with. He says, Somebody who gets up early and stays up late. Many college folks would say, forget to get up early, but yes, stay up late, right? But somebody who gets up early, stays up late, and yet their sleep is fitful and filled with fear, and there's never any sense of rest. There's this ever-present sense of worry. Anybody been there? You lay awake at night trying to go to sleep. What starts running through your mind? Or it's even worse, you fall asleep and then wake up at the, the bewitching hour of 3 or 3.30 or 4, and you're like, oh, Darn, my mind's starting to go, right? And you just have this ever-present sense of worry, ever-present sense of anxiety. And then Solomon gives us the contrast. He gives to his beloved sleep, the one who trusts in the Lord. What do they receive? They receive from the Lord rest. They receive from the Lord refreshment and sleep. Now, I think this is what I need to hear, y'all. I'm, you know, I struggle with this. Not just because I'm 44 and I'm starting to reach middle age and I guess the medical reasons for that. I don't sleep as well. I don't know. But even just the whole struggle with anxiety and worry, yeah, I struggle with that even as a pastor, right? I love that hymn, Come Thou Found of Every Blessing. And I think we could change the word in that hymn, you know, the part of the hymn that goes, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. You could change it to prone to worry, Lord, I feel it, right? We could change the word from wander to worry. And I think it would all resonate with us, right? Listen to what David Dixon said. He's this great Puritan commentator. Listen to what he says. He says, the only way to have a quiet mind and good success is to use the means that God has ordained without anxiety and commit the outcome to God. The only way to have a quiet mind and good success is to use the means that God has ordained without anxiety and leave the outcome, he says, to God. Can you do that? Do you do that in life? That you leave the outcome of God. You know, what is it? You can think, if I were to ask you this question, what is the situation right now in your life where you are looking for an outcome? You got it? I bet you it only took a nanosecond for you to figure that out. Can you leave that outcome to God? In your work, in your security, looking for security, in your raising a family, can you leave the outcome to God? William Plumer, who also I was studying this week and thinking about this song, 
he was a Puritan, and he wrote this commentary. It's over a thousand pages long on just the Psalms. Gosh, it was one of his life's major works. Good, 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 great commentary. But he had this question that I read this week that stopped me in my tracks. Listen to what he asked this question in about Psalm 127. He says, how many millions sleep and wake up like atheists? He says, how many millions go to sleep and wake up in the morning like atheists? In other words, he's saying, how do you... You go to bed and then you wake up in your worries as if God did not exist. And isn't it crazy that we think we can worry ourselves to a place of security? You know what I mean? You ever been there before? Well, if I just worry about this enough, maybe I'll figure it out. You ever felt that way before and you just kind of worry? And you know what it's like when, you, when you're in this cycle of worry? I don't know. To me, it looks like this giant ditch witch. You ever seen those machines that have the chain and they dig? And that's like this cycle of worry. You think you're going to figure out the problem? But your worry is like this ditch witch, and it's just digging a deeper and deeper trench of worry and anxiety. So do we think that if we just go to bed, we can worry ourselves into some kind of security? Or we can worry ourselves to the point where we figure the problem out? Or do we work and trust God to establish the work of our hands? That's the contrast that Solomon's given us here. Do you go to sleep like an atheist? Or do you trust in the Lord? Do you worry about things? your head hits your pillow or can you trust your building your work your vocation your job and what's going on in your job and your ornery boss right or your ornery employees can you trust the lord in, in your building and security of your family can you trust the lord in raising your children and establish that he would establish the work of your hands so the first thing we see in this psalm is that our creating and our conserving our building right our protecting our labor our search for security is all pointless and restless right without the Lord. And that's the first thing we learn. Now the second thing we learn in this psalm, there's a second thing, is this, that our families are a gift from God. Our families are a gift from God, but our parenting and our aspirations for our families and our children must be entrusted to God. So our families are a gift from God, but our parenting and our aspirations for our family and our children must be entrusted to God. Look at verses 3 and 5. What does he say? He says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the, of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blesses the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. And this is kind of neat. You know what we've got laid out for us here in verses 3 to 5? Here's what we've got laid out for us here. It's God's original universal health care and retirement plan. Children. That's what he's saying. This is God's universal, original health care and retirement plan for us. That children were meant, you know, when we get old and decrepit, <laughs> we have children who like us and who want to take care of us, right? We have young people around us who like us and who want to care for us. And I see some of you parents who are looking at your child going, see what he's saying? You need to hear that. Remember that. Write that down. Right? And the psalmist, he's celebrating that. He says, children are a heritage from the Lord. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Now, if that picture to you looks a little idyllic or serene, it you know, when I read this, you know what it made me think of? It made me think of Norman Rockwell. You know, he's this great Americana painter. And he, I believe he had this painting that appeared on the Saturday Evening Post. I don't know when it was, a long time ago. But it was the picture of this American family sitting around the table, just this idyllic, serene picture of your family 
enjoying dinner together. And it's just brought these sentimental feelings of, wow, it's good to be an American. It's good to have family, you know. It's just good to have food on the table, right? I think that's kind of the picture here, this idyllic, serene picture. But I think our family experience is probably very different than a Norman Rockwell painting, isn't it? And often the way God gives us the gift of family doesn't always look like a normal Rockwell, Norman Rockwell painting, does it? It doesn't look like the cover of the Saturday Evening Post with his family around the dinner table. No, I think more often than not, the way God gives us the gift of family, it's like this crazy dysfunctional family reunion, right? That you go to and the skeletons are coming out of the closet. You're trying to pack them back in, you know? Get them back in. Think of it. Think about how God gives the gift of family through Scripture. Oftentimes you read the gift of family that God gives in Scripture and it's not this idyllic picture, is it? It's chaos and a lot of suffering and trials. makes me think of Genesis 11. Derek Kidner brought this out in his commentary about Genesis 11. He tied Genesis 11 into this verses 3 and 5 of Psalm 127. He made this connection. He says, think about this. If you go to Genesis 11, this is the story about the uh, Tower of Babel. Remember this story? There they are, the people in the plains of Shinar, and they are going to make a name for themselves, right? They are populous as ants, busy as bees, and they're going to build this tower in the sky, the Tower of Babel, and make a name for themselves. They're not thinking of unless the Lord establishes the house. They're trying to build their own house for their own name, right? And what does God do? He he frustrates their plans, right? He, He makes their languages so that they can't communicate, and the whole project stops and crumbles. That's the beginning of Genesis 11, but you get to the end of that chapter, Genesis 11, and you see God has this counter plan of blessing. And here's his counter plan of blessing. He picks this idolater from a rock. Remember who it was? Ur of the Chaldees. He picks this idolater, and he says, his name is Terah, and listen to what he says to Terah. He says, Terah, I am going to give you a boy, and his name is Abraham. And Abraham is going to have to wait and have a child with his wife until he is extremely advanced in his age and years. Now think about that. There is no telling the family tensions that must have existed between Abraham and Sarah, right? Abraham hears that he's about to have a child. God promises a child and, and they laugh, right? God tell, the Scripture tells us that they laugh at God. There's no way. There must have been tension in their marriage. But through that, through that, boy that's born to Abraham and Sarah, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And if you could have been a fly there on the wall in Abraham and Sarah's years, you would have probably said, this is a mess, right? Their marriage, their, the way God is establishing their family, it's a mess. It doesn't look like that normal Norman Rockwell painting of the family life that I want. But God had a plan, didn't he? And God worked his blessings in spite of Abraham in spite of Sarah, in spite of their childlessness for much of their lives. And he blessed all of the families of the earth through them, right? I love what Derek Kidner said. If you got boys in particular, listen to this. But kids, if you don't have kids, maybe you're not even married, that's okay. I think you can resonate with this. Derek Kidner said this. He says, it's not untypical of God's gifts, children, that they first are liabilities. It's not untypical of God's gifts, children, that they are first liabilities. It's not untypical of God's gifts that they're first liabilities or at least responsibilities before they become obvious assets. The greater their promise, the more likely that these sons will be a handful before they will be a quiverful. Did you get that? 
the greater the promise, the more likely these sons will be a handful before they will be a quiverful. Moms, I hope that encourages you. you got young boys jumping off the couch, right? Scaring through the house. Be encouraged. They will be a handful before, before the Lord will eventually make them a quiverful. That should encourage you as parents. The greater their promise, the more likely these sons who are a heritage from the Lord will be a handful before they will be a quiverful. Testing and trial always comes before blessing and reward, right? That's how God works. So if you're not living this Norman Rockwell table family life, but you trust in the Lord and you lean not on, on your own understanding, He will make your children a blessing, a quiverful. You see, He is working His purpose and His promises out, and He will justify Himself to you. And like someday like Job, you will say, I have heard of you now, Lord, but now I see you and I know that, God, you are good. There's a warning here in this psalm for us as well. Who wrote this psalm? Solomon did, right? He wrote this psalm. And this psalm tells us that we shouldn't build, we shouldn't find security, we shouldn't raise a family without trusting in the Lord. We shouldn't rear our families without trusting in the Lord. And think about this. Solomon wrote this psalm, right? He wrote the wisdom that's found in this psalm, right? But it's like the wisdom and the lessons that are found within this psalm that he wrote that were ultimately relevant to his situation, right? It's like what he wrote for himself ultimately fell on his deaf ears. Think about this. Think about Solomon's, Solomon's building campaign, 1 Kings 9. I mean, an incredible building campaign. But his building became reckless. He didn't trust the Lord in the building, and he went on and, and built just lots of stuff and acquired so much and amassed so much wealth, and it became reckless. Think about his kingdom. If you follow the, 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 the growth of, and the destruction of Solomon's kingdom in 1 uh, Kings 11, it tells us that his kingdom became a ruin. Think about Solomon's marriages. Disaster after disaster. Friends, this is a warning for us. Think about this. The wisest man who ever lived made a wreck of his own life and didn't listen to the counsel that he himself wrote in Psalm 127. You know, it's been said, you're only as wise as your next decision, right? Now, oddly, there's some good news that comes to us out of this warning. In fact, there are two pieces of good news that come out of this warning, and I want to close with this. First of all, the Bible is giving you this warning because this is important and because it's so hard for us to be dependent upon the Lord. You know, it's really hard to trust the Lord, isn't it? I find that so true. It's so hard to trust the Lord. It's so easy for us to talk about, yes, I trust the Lord, right? But it's very hard for us to actually do it. And so God in His kindness has let Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, tell you to trust the Lord in your building, to tell you to trust the Lord in your security, to tell you to trust the Lord in your family life. And then the Lord allowed you to watch Solomon not do it and to fail, right? And you need to realize how widespread this exhortation to us is Think about this. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 10. If you remember this, Paul talks about how the children of Israel, they were grumbling against the Lord. They were complaining in the wilderness. And so God judged them. And Paul wrote that down as a warning for us that we would not grumble and fail to trust the Lord. And get this. Do you realize how expensive that lesson was for the Israelites to learn in, in, in uh, the promised land or in the wilderness? God allowed the judgment to be visited on, visited on 2 million Israelites Paul tells us that 23,000 died in one day because of God's judgment. That was expensive. 
And God gives us that warning, that story, so we, we would learn not to grumble. We would learn to not test the Lord, but to trust Him, even when we're in the wilderness. And He's giving us another expensive lesson here in Psalm 127. You see, the son of His servant David, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, stumbled and fell on his face. And with his own counsel tells us, don't do what I do. I stumbled and fell. Don't do what I do. Friends, do you have any idea how much God cares for you? Do you have any clue how much God really, really, really cares for you? Do you have any idea how expensive his exhortation is and his admonitions and his warnings are? Think about this. That it was so expensive, it cost God so much that he ate the cost of sending his son Christ down the cross for you. And here's another piece of good news here. How do we do this? How do we trust the Lord? How do we get to a place where I do trust the Lord to build my house? I do trust the Lord in my vocation and my work. I do trust the Lord in my building a security for my wife, my wife and my family. I do trust the Lord in raising a family. I do trust the Lord that I hope to get married someday. I don't want to stay single my whole life. I am going to entrust the Lord to bring me a godly spouse who's going to love me. How do we do this? How do we trust the Lord? How do we trust the Lord? I love how verse 2 ends. What does he say? He gives beloved rest. He gives his beloved sleep. And I think the clue of how we do this is here. Because if you look at this term beloved and sleep or beloved and rest, you know what it makes me think of? It makes me think of the story in Mark chapter 4. Remember this? When Jesus and his disciples were out in the Sea of Galilee, heading across the Sea of Galilee, and all of a sudden this tempest, this storm comes up, and the disciples are freaking out, Right? And they go to find Jesus and ask for his help. And what is Jesus doing? He's asleep. He's resting. He was asleep. Here's this insurmountable tempest going on around the disciples. And here Jesus is asleep. And guess what? That tempest, that storm that disciples were, were seeing and experiencing on this boat was just a foreshadowing of the greater tempest and storm that Jesus would have to face on the cross and taking your and my sin on himself. And yet Jesus rest. God says He gives His beloved sleep. The tempest and the rage coming towards Christ as He knows He's going to receive the Father's judgment on the cross and yet He was able to rest. Why? Because He could trust His Father. He could trust His Father's providential plan for His life. He could trust His Father's providential plan for you and your work and in your family and in your security and in your vocation. So you can only have rest in your building and in your security and in your family when you're in fellowship with Christ. And here's the crazy thing. What does the proverb say? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, what? Acknowledge Him and He will make your ways straight. See, friends, you're only able to do that if you depend upon Christ. Think of this. That you won't even be able to depend upon God unless you depend upon Christ to enable you to depend upon God. Think about that. That you can't even depend upon. You can't even have faith unless you turn to Him and He enables you to even have faith. That's how dependent we have to be on Him. You see, we are wired by the fall. We are wired by sin to depend upon who? Ourselves. 
And we can't even depend upon Him unless we depend upon Him to help us depend upon Him. That's how desperate and broken we are. And so Solomon gives us this gift, Psalm 127, and tells us to depend upon the Lord because He didn't do it. And in so telling us, we are told that the important thing is that we desperately need God's help to even depend upon His help. And so my prayer is that may God grant you a heart of dependence. And in all that you do, these universal preoccupations of your life, that you would entrust those things to the Lord. Now I want to sneak this in here. Go back to verses 4 and 5. This is a treasure that the Lord has given us. He gives us this peculiar illustration about children. And all of you need to hear this. Because some of you have children. The Lord has gifted you with children. Some of you, you have longed to have children and the Lord has not allowed you to have a child. But you know what? You have nieces and nephews. You have little ones that you're connected with here in this church or in your life. All of us, in a sense, have children in our lives. Listen to this exhortation that God gives us concerning our influence in raising children. It's a beautiful picture. What does he say in verse 4 and 5? He says, Let like arrows in the hand of a warrior are children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with him. Now this is a beautiful picture of the blessing that your children are to be, not just to you, but the blessing that children, your children are to be to the world. Get this. What does he say children are like? They are like arrows in the hands of the Lord. You know what the Lord is called? He is called the warrior, the great warrior. He is saying, your children are like arrows in his hands. And he takes those arrows and he shoots those arrows, releases those arrows out into the world for the sake of the gospel. If your children are in Christ, He's taking those kids, and they're not meant just to bless you, but your children are to be a blessing for the world, like arrows in the hands of a warrior. And I know many of us see our children at times as burdens sometimes, don't we? They're tiresome, right? But if the Lord has blessed you with children, if He has given you children in His divine kindness, He is going to care for them physically, He is going to care for them spiritually, if you have entrusted those children to Him. William Plumer goes on and says this. He says, It's an unspeakable blessing when God gives us children that He rightly disposes them to such courses of conduct as are suited to make them blessings to us and, not, and to the world. Get this what he says. By nature they are depraved. Any of you have kids? You get that. By nature they are sinners. But here's the promise. But nothing short of divine power and grace can so mold their hearts and manners as to make them real blessings for the world. Maybe you're raising kids and you have forgotten that it's really God's grace and divine power that's going to transform your kids. You cannot change your kids. You can discipline them, and I pray, beloved, that you discipline them in love and not out of anger. But you know what? You ultimately cannot change the heart of your child. It has to be God's divine power and grace that does that. Unless the Lord builds the house. Surrender them to Jesus. We, we celebrate something called uh, uh, infant baptism. And some of you might not always understand the inner workings of that. I don't fully understand the inner workings of that. But I do know this. It's based on the fact that God is a covenant-keeping God who loves to keep His promises. 
So when we baptize an infant child who doesn't understand what's happening to them, our hope is that someday in the future, because of God's divine power and grace, they will understand what happened to them because He has drawn them to Himself and we claim God's covenant promises for our children. That's why we do that. If we didn't trust in a covenant God, we'd be all at the creek. God is, loves to keep His promises. He's faithful to keep His promises. And so we trust in Him to build our house. We trust in Him to, to build our work. We trust in Him to build our security because it's only in His divine power and grace that He can make our children real blessings, that He can make our vocation a blessing. So cry to God in behalf of your children. He's a covenant God who loves families. Don't give up on your children. Maybe you have children who are older and who are not walking with the Lord right now. Don't give up on your children. Continue to surrender them in prayer to the Lord. God, these are yours. Oh Lord, may they walk with you. Lord, may they they know of your divine power and love. If you have little ones, you pray daily for your children. You turn your children over daily to the Lord. Pray for strength and courage to labor in loving them and raising them. Maybe the Lord hasn't allowed you to have children. I know that's hurtful. I know that's a burden you carry. Take that burden to Jesus. His burden is life. And maybe the Lord will turn that longing and that burden into a burden for others' children to help raise them. That's one of the things I love about the vows that we take when we baptize a child. Because I ask you what, Wellspring, will you commit to raising and pointing this child to Jesus as long as you live? And your answer is yes. You take that vow seriously. So maybe the Lord hasn't allowed you to have kids. You can point that child to Jesus. You can invest in that child's life and be part of pointing that child to Christ. Our prayer is, whatever it is that you do, whether it's work, whether it's raising a family, whether it's longing for security, that you surrender all of those things. For unless the Lord builds, we labor in them. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these, these great encouragements and also these great warnings. Thank you, Lord, that you gave us a psalm written by Solomon, the wisest man in the world, who gave us such great wisdom in this psalm. And then you allowed his failures to be written about so that we would see his failures, that we would learn from his failures, that we would learn, Lord, even from your grace that you showed him and his life, even in the midst of his failures. Thank you, God, that you love failures. You love failures so much that you sent the only perfect winner of them all, Christ. And he received all of our failures on the cross. And he even received our pride and our arrogance and trying to build our own houses, trying to build our own lives, trying to build our own kingdoms and our own selfishness and pride. He took all that upon himself. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to see what failures we really are. What it really would be loving us well to show us, Lord, how we try to build a life apart from you. I pray instead that, Lord, we would surrender and submit to you right now. And say, okay, Lord, you build my Okay, Lord, you you take my job. Okay, Lord, you take my frustration with my boss and my coworkers. Okay, Lord, you take my longing for security. Oh, Lord, would you take my children and my parenting 
my above or below average parent, Lord, would you take those things? Would you build my job? Would you build my security? Would you build my family for your glory? And that my children would be like arrows that would be used by you to go out and touch the world for the sake of Jesus. So Lord, help us to surrender all of these things to you. And then would you give us rest. Help us to find rest in you. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.